At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jean-Claude Olivier was dressed as he often was for a night out in a white suit. His style was a bit flashy. French shirts, Italian shoes, and dark sunglasses, even at night. The look fit his alter ego, Division Star. A radio broadcaster and DJ, he was also a music promoter, booking Haitian bands in and around Miami. On this Sunday in February 1991, one of his acts, Top Vice, was playing the Chateau Club in North Miami. It was going to be a big night. Top Vice played a style of jazzy merengue, which was huge back home in Haiti and here in South Florida. Their sound had a bit of nostalgia for the mostly Haitian immigrant crowd, many of whom live nearby in Little Haiti. Champagne and cognac was flowing and the club was packed. Around 3am, Jean-Claude took to the stage to introduce the band. As he hyped up the crowd, he threw in a bit of politics, referencing the recent and historic changes in Haiti. Just two weeks before, a new president had been inaugurated. After decades of punishing dictatorship, a new era of hope was just beginning. And it came in the form of a radical priest turned politician named Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Division Star had devoted radio broadcasts to the election, urging fellow Haitian exiles in Miami to support democracy back home. He was new to politics. Most of Jean-Claude's life had been about music. He played the trumpet in the Haitian Coast Guard band, lived to dance. But the democracy movement had changed something in him. For the past months, he'd devoted more and more time on his weekly radio show to supporting Aristide. And then he found himself talking about it on stage that night at the Chateau. He wanted the crowd to know that he and Top Vice were down for the cause. They were on the side of the new leadership in Haiti. But 
Not everyone wanted to hear it. There were those who didn't welcome the change. Many of the old regime's loyalists also lived in Miami. The public started boring him. People were just making fun of him. The Haitians were tired of all the speeches going on. They were preferred for the band to be start playing back. And uh, anybody who was taking that mic probably was going to be booed at that time. Gary Eugene, a family friend of Jean-Claude and police officer, was there that night. But unfortunately, he took it personally and uh, start arguing with the club, with members who are inside the club. It got kind of heated, and Jean-Claude wasn't the type to be shut up. His motto was, even if they tell me not to say it, I'm going to say it anyway. And I remember escorting him, actually, grabbed his hand and took him to his car. That was part. I took him to his car. I said, get in your car and leave. It was after midnight, around... 4 a.m. by now. I went back to my car that was parked in front of the club and left. But Jean-Claude didn't leave. He remembered that he'd left a nice bottle of cognac hidden under a table at the club. So he went back in, grabbed the bottle and three red roses out of a vase on the way out. He crossed Second Avenue and unlocked the door of his red Pontiac Fiero. He didn't know it but someone was waiting for him, and they were close at hand. The hitman was sitting in the passenger seat of an idling car. It inched closer and opened fire, pumping two shots into the Pontiac and three into Jean-Claude, as his white suit soaked red with blood. The dying Jean-Claude yelled to his friend to get the license plate number of the getaway car, but it was gone. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts, this is Silenced. I'm Oz Veloshin. And I'm Anna Arana. This is episode one of eight, The Black Book. Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. 
I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's just so much that I know now that I didn't know when I first heard about Jean-Claude Olivier and what happened to him the night of February 17th, 1991. Years before I understood that Jean-Claude had been threatened before he died, that there was a hit list circulating in Miami. Before I knew about the tight knot of gangland put-up jobs, the battles between cocaine traffickers, transnational coup d'etat plots, and CIA conspiracies. Before I appreciated that what happened back then on the streets of Miami had everything to do with what happened on the streets of Port-au-Prince. Before I came to think of the story I'm about to tell you as a cipher for understanding how what's happening today in Haiti could have been so different, perhaps so much better. Before those revelations, and so many more, I received an email with an attachment It was a report from the Committee to Protect Journalists. One of the chapters was this story about the unsolved murders of Haitian radio journalists in Miami's Little Haiti. I got that email soon after I'd finished a podcast about serial murders of women in the border town of Juarez, Mexico. A massive case of impunity. Hundreds, some say thousands of women, killed without, still to this day, a clear culprit. And here was another case of impunity. This time, Haitian radio broadcasters killed on American soil in the early 90s. I could immediately see there was a story here. Despite the decades that had passed since then and now, I knew from experience that impunity tends to fester and grow. That the past is never really past. So, I got in touch with the journalist who wrote that report. Here you are calling me about a story that's 30 years old that I 
had pretty much put aside and that I was very proud of when I did it. Anna Arana, an award-winning journalist who'd reported on wars and drugs throughout Latin America, covering a major assassination in Haiti, working deep in guerrilla territory in El Salvador, and once surviving a close encounter with Pablo Escobar in Colombia. But that's another story. But I was thinking, yeah, how old was he when I did this story? He must be 30-something, so maybe he was like four or five years old. (laughs) Still in diapers. (laughs) So, despite me being just about out of diapers now, you decided to jump back in, Anna. Why? Because I knew the story was not finished. What my reporting back then showed me was that whoever was behind the murders was not held responsible for them. And the agencies that were investigating the murders overlooked key elements of the crimes. They purposely ignore the political context. When we first started working together, now almost two years ago, I thought we could do a bunch of prep from our respective desks in New York and Washington. But as soon as you were back in, you wanted to be in the field. If you don't walk the streets of a place, if you don't smell the place, if you don't have... I mean, we have five senses. What, you think is only texting? (laughs) That's lesson number one in reporting. God... So, we went to Miami. Actually, we went to Little Haiti, which is one part Miami and two parts Port-au-Prince. It's a really small neighborhood in the northeast of the city. A refuge for newly arrived Haitians who can find a taste of home in Miami. Though, like many immigrant neighborhoods in Miami, it's quickly shrinking as huge swaths of property get bought up for yet another development project. And a lot's changed since the time of Jean-Claude's murder, Much of the communities moved north, and many of the storefronts are now shuttered. But as we walked the streets of Little Haiti, there was still talk of the most recent devastating political news from Haiti, the shocking assassination of the sitting president just six months before. And I was starting to understand the connections between Haiti and Little Haiti run deep. A saying I'd hear on this trip would reverberate. When Haiti sneezes, Miami gets the flu. A lot has changed since I lived here in the 1990s. Then I was working for the Sun Sentinel. At the time, there was little mainstream press coverage of the Haitian community in the city. There were some exceptions, and that included fellow reporter Harold Moss. He spoke Creole, despite not being Haitian. Well, listening to the Creole radio broadcasts was part of my daily life. As I would drive around, I would have these Creole radio broadcasts playing that connected people both to what was going on in Haiti and to what was going on in this place that a lot of people had just moved to. He listened to Radio Pep La, or Radio of the People, Jean-Claude's show, and so many others that aired across the AM dial, and still do. He first heard about Jean-Claude's murder on the radio in his car, In those early days after the shooting, Creole broadcasters were piecing together what they could find out. These killings struck at the heart of that very important network of broadcasters that kept people informed, kept me informed, people that listeners heard every day and counted on for information. So it was something that I think really hit people hard. He also began to learn more about Jean-Claude, 
that he wasn't someone inherently driven by politics, that his politics had emerged over time. Harold spoke to the manager of the radio station and to his family and friends. He did have a reputation as something of a ladies' man, a mover, a shaker, someone who would capture the attention of everyone in the room. Despite Jean-Claude's flashy exterior, his wife told Harold of a deeply caring side. The morning of his death, he'd gone with her to a flea market where he bought her a new outfit. And the roses that were found next to him in his car, Harold learned, were for her. As the investigation into Jean-Claude's murder began, there were immediately questions about the motive. So there were all of these potential conspiracies that were connected to different theories about about what had happened, and and the police had to sift through all of that. Some said that Jean-Claude was mixed up in drugs, just another victim of Miami's shady nightlife scene. Or maybe it was a bar fight that got out of hand. Harold was skeptical. There are clear reasons why things are happening, and um, in many cases, they started in Haiti and came to Miami. From all that time listening to the Crail radio, he knew there was a context here. There were people, powerful people, they were making very angry. We knew we had to visit the radio station where Jean-Claude posted Radio Pepla. WLQY, 1320 AM. To this day, the station is a community hub. We went to visit someone who had been a source for my original report. Someone who's had a significant influence in Little Haiti for generations. Marlene Bastien. When we got there, Marlene was in the middle of her weekly show. She's been hosting the same show for the last 30 years. Marlene is in her 60s now. And when we were there, she's speaking in rapid fire Creole, moving easily from a serious message about healthcare access and then breaks into a broad smile. John Claude and Marlene ran in the same circles. They were both activists in the Haitian community. They attended pro-democracy rallies and also protests for refugee rights. Marlene was a little younger, and she looked up to John Claude's generation of broadcasters. She could see the power Creole language radio had in Little Haiti to get the message out. Radio has been a strong theme for Marlene because her very first time on the mic set off a chain of events that changed the course of her life. I lived in Port-au-Prince when I went to secondary school, but I'm from the country, right? I'm really a, a village girl. In the late 70s, Marlene moved to Haiti's capital to pursue her dreams of becoming a doctor. It was a very difficult time for Haiti. The country had been tightly controlled since the late 50s by a single family, the Duvaliers. First by Francois Papadoc Duvalier, and then his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, also known as Baby Doc. 
to give you a sense of just how vicious this dictatorship was, reportedly, in the presidential palace, Papadoc had a torture room with walls painted brown to disguise the spatters of blood. And in that room, he had a special peephole installed so he could watch his enforcers, known as the Tonton Makuts, go to work on anyone who dared challenge him. The Tonton Makut are by name a chilling reminder of Haiti's infamous death squads. They can and do kill on the basis of suspicion alone. The atmosphere of paranoia was so intense that Papadoc had people convinced street dogs were spying on his behalf. I was told that if Duvalier dies, everyone dies. Tens of thousands fled Haiti. At home, basic needs were not being met. Oftentimes, we didn't have electricity. You know, when you don't have electricity, you have to study under the lamppost. Marlene was determined to find a way to get her education and become a doctor. So she sat book in hand under the lamppost. But this small act was seen as an attack on the Duvalier regime. It demonstrated that they weren't providing for people, as they claimed. The mayor didn't want us to study under the lamppost anymore. And I said, how dare he? I thought that was so that was so unfair because the rich kids, they don't have to study under the lamppost. When the, the electricity is out, they have generators, so they have electricity. I was frustrated. So I marched my friends to IT and Terre. Marlene took her complaint to the best outlet she knew of, Radio Haiti Inter. Under the Duvaliers, the press was heavily censored. International newspapers often arrived full of holes. Any mention of Haiti physically cut out of the paper. This was the North Korea of the Caribbean. But Radio Haiti was a lifeline of information. It survived shootings, shutdowns, and the arrest and torture of its journalists. And when Marlene showed up, she was welcomed onto the air by one of the hosts. He said, oh, you want to give an interview? What about? And when, when I told him, he gave us the mic. It was a moment that changed her life. Marlene's meager ask for light to study by turned her into an enemy of the state. We thought that the Totomakuts were following us to kill us. We changed routes to go to go home. You know, we were we were really scared. Really scared. And Marlene's family was scared too. Running afoul of the Makuts could mean ending up in Fort Dimanche, a prison where inmates had their food slopped onto the floor of shared cells and where few emerged alive. The radio had given her a voice and put a target on her back. My dad overheard that I was giving interviews at Radio ATN Terra. He thought that that was a death sentence right there. He freaked out. He freaked out. Because he knew under the dictatorship, you could die. You could disappear. Marlene's father was living in South Florida at the time. And after her radio appearance, he insisted that she join him there. I came from a dictatorship where I had to hide under the bed to read progressive books. And I came here and people are on the streets. I said, wow. It was the late 70s and Marlene had come to Miami at a moment when the streets of Little Haiti were alive with protests against the Duvalier dictatorship and for refugee rights in Miami. In Haiti, speaking out could be a death sentence. In the US the brave were beginning to use their voices. And one man 
was at the centre of it all. Two days after I arrived, my, my dad introduced me to Father Gérard Jean Just and I studied volunteering. Father Gérard Jean Just. He'd fled Haiti himself after refusing to sign an oath of loyalty to the Duvalier government. For Haitians just arrived in Florida, the priest and his group of volunteers offered a lifeline. Marlene jumped right in. She worked helping new arrivals at the Chrome Detention Center, where Haitian refugees were often held after they arrived by boat. So, when I do my first interview, I would ask them, where are you from? Where are you from? Kikoto Sorti, where are you from? And then I'll get the details. If Marlene could find a family member to vouch for them, they could be released, at least until their immigration hearing. Again, she turned to the radio. I would go on the radio on Sunday. I said, so-and-so came looking for family. And I give specific information about where they're from. So I became very popular. Father Jean-Just and Marlene were reuniting families. So they gained influence with newly arrived Haitians. And they used that influence to organize. Marlene became a member of Father Jean-Just's political organization called VAO, Creole for Beware of Them. Jean-Claude Olivier was also a member, and they were dedicated to bringing down the regime in Haiti. He was always fighting and seeing it as it is. You know, stop racism, free the Haitians now, you know. He always said it as, it as it was. In Miami, it's a major confrontation. It's a battlefield sometimes we feel like. We have no protection as innocent people. We say no to that. Jean-Just used the language of the Haitian Revolution of 1804. After all, this was the only country to achieve independence through slave revolt, to rally Haitians in Miami in support of the fight for democracy back home. What, you, what you're fighting for is greater than death. What if our ancestors were afraid to, to fight, to break the chains of slavery, and yet they fought and defeated the mightiest army at that time, the Napoleon army? It's better to fight, standing up, than die on your knees. But this wasn't just rhetoric. Father Jean Just was also coordinating and financing the revolutionary resistance struggle in Haiti, led by that priest-turned-politician, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. By the end of the 1980s, hope had begun to swirl around Aristide. There was a sense that he spoke to the Haitian people, and he was amassing massive support. He campaigned as the champion of the poor and promised to break the military's power over Haiti. Even people who had not been tapped into politics previously, like Jean-Claude Olivier, were inspired. And it was around this time that Jean-Claude started devoting his airtime to politics. Then, with the world's eyes on Haiti. Aristide won the 1990 election in a landslide. It was dancing in the streets today as crowds gathered to celebrate 
the anticipated outcome of yesterday's presidential election. Little Haiti spilled out onto the streets. Calls of congratulation from the U.S. and other countries to Father Jean Bertrand Aristide, a popular priest who is the apparent winner of Haiti's first truly free election. And Marlene was among them. How did the election Aristide feel here in Miami? How did it change things? Oof. It was really a transformative era. There was a lot of hope, a lot of hope. And what did the old Makuts think of him? Oh, well, of course, they hate his guts. Yeah. And there was a division. Not everybody in Miami saw Aristide's election as a victory. In fact, the election stoked tensions in Little Haiti. There were those like Marlene and Jean-Claude who were inspired by Aristide, who followed Father Jean-Just, who joined VAO. But there were many others in Little Haiti who stood on the other side of the political divide. They were pro-military and saw Aristide as a radical. Some of them had been taunted Makuts, enforcers for the regime. That meant that sometimes victims could bump into their torturers at the local grocery store. Did it make you scared for your own safety? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at the time, a lot of us had our names in that black book, like Le Livre Noir. Le Livre Noir, the black book. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm with a couple of journalists real quick. Can I park here for two seconds? I'm good? Man, you look like you're the boss, bro. Don't even trip on me like that. When we first went to Miami to report this story, we were given a tour by the unofficial mayor of Little Haiti, Carl Just, the son of the man who gave Little Haiti its name. And we are in Viter and Maria Just Way, which is 59th Street, between uh, Northeast... Second Avenue. We're standing at the corner, named after his parents. In Northeast 3rd, in the heart of Little Haiti. Carl said that Little Haiti hasn't forgotten about Jean-Claude Olivier's murder, or of the murders that would come after. We own the story that nobody wants to hear. We don't have an audience. Do you feel this story is relevant for us to tell today? It's more relevant now than it was back then. I would hope the loss of these journalists would have started a rage, but apparently it didn't. You, you describe these as political assassinations. Yeah. So warning in 1991 that was given was a stern warning. Stay in your place. It was the calling card. It's like the mafia used to do. But these guys came here and they thought they were safe, speaking their mind. And in the end, they paid with their lives. I mean, what do you say on that? Whenever you speak your mind, you're never safe. <laughs> That's what I say to that. They were all used to getting threats. They knew that there were people um, out to get them, but there was definitely, I don't know, a, a sense, everyone doing anything at all similar to what we're doing, they're getting threats. Sometimes it doesn't mean anything, but sometimes, obviously, it does. Harold Moss again. In Miami, you had everything from people who fled repression and poverty and came and barely survived the, the dangerous voyage by boat, all the way up to generals who had run the country. So all of these opposing forces with all of the grudges from Haiti were present. During and after the 1990 election that electrified little Haiti, those grudges were playing out on the airwaves. The Creole airwaves were a battleground where the pro-Aristide forces were, were doing battle against the pro-army forces. Both sides had their airtime, and while pro-democracy broadcasters like Marlene and Jean-Claude may have outnumbered them, those who preferred the status quo, the more right-wing Haitians, were fighting their corner. And it wasn't just on the airwaves. It was also out on the streets. This electric period surrounding the 1990 election really split everybody up into sides. There were a lot of Totomakuts uh, here too. The regime's enforcers. Right here in Miami. Marlene remembers one horrible incident at a big march on the streets of Little Haiti. 
VAO members were rallying against the treatment of Haitian refugees. They were chanting, accusing the US government of supporting the Duvaliers and demanding regime change. They were used to being intimidated by mounted police officers. But this time, as they were marching through Little Haiti, they saw a car driving straight towards them and coming fast. Next thing you know, I saw with my own eyes, uh, a young Haitian woman was also protesting on the street with me. It ran ran over by a Totomakut car. Yeah, right here on 54th Street. The woman died, and the car was rumoured to be driven by a Tonton Makut. But no one knew for sure. What many felt was the long arm of the regime in Miami. They had a lot of money, and they were recruiting young spies. They recruited young spies to spy on us, to... to uh, make sure that they, they get information about who, who the people are who were, you know, organizing against the dictatorship. It was really a, a, a very scary time. According to Marlene, these spies were making a list of enemies of the regime. They would come to see who's demonstrating against uh, the Duvalier so that our names, our names could be put, placed on the black book. A hit list targeting those protesting and reporting back to Haiti. We don't know who made it, and Marlene never saw it herself. But again, she heard rumours. Rumours that were sent into overdrive by Jean-Claude's death. Because this was even more chilling than a car being driven into a crowd. This had the hallmarks of a targeted assassination. And, according to Jean-Claude's widow... He'd been receiving threats called into his radio show on the very day he was killed, saying if he didn't shut up about his politics, he'd be killed. I first heard about this hit list when I investigated back in the 90s. To the Veo crowd, the hit list, with Jean-Claude's name on it, it all added up to a clear motive for his assassination. The police saw something else entirely. I have to be honest with you. Or I can tell you the possibility that drugs were involved. Gary Eugene, Jean-Claude's family friend, who was there that night, was also one of the first police officers put on the case. That possibility was much stronger than the political shootings. We were never able to conclude that any of the shootings were politically motivated. So, depending on who you ask, Anna, Jean-Claude was killed after getting mixed up in drugs, or he was a martyr for Haitian democracy. That's what's so frustrating about this case. Back in the 90s, when I closed my report on the case, I called for more investigation. I said, pay closer attention to the political context around the murders. But no further investigation came. I had a hunch that the VAO folks were right. Jean-Claude was not murder over drugs or a bar fight. Something else was going on here. So that's what we started with. And in order to find a killer, we dredged the deep waters separating Haiti and Miami, a world of CIA informants and blackmailers, torturers and drug smugglers, and radio broadcasters, who found that even in the US, their enemies were never far away. 
next time another broadcaster is shot down in the streets of Miami. It went from being, here's a murder that no one has solved yet, to this is a campaign of murder targeting Creole language broadcasters. It really sort of raised the question of how much farther is this going to go? And the investigation begins. What about with the Miami police? We were lost. Tell you the truth. We were left stranded. One was, okay, maybe it's not political. Four is too much to be a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence. You're picking off these people one by one at moments of maximum tension back home in Haiti as a warning to them. It's definitely psychological warfare. The CIA, they clearly gave a green light because those guys were on the payroll. This is not some sort of Haitian imagination. This was very real. Silence is a Kaleidoscope content original produced by Margaret Katcher, Jen Kinney and Padmini Ragunov. Research assistance from Sibylla Phipps, Jeremy Bigwood and Kira Sinis. Edited by Lacey Roberts. Executive produced by Kate Osborne. Reported and hosted by Anna Arana and me, Osvaloshin. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Music by Oliver Rodigan, a.k.a. Cadenza. Mix and sound design by Kyle Murdoch. Thanks to Mangesh Hatikada, Kostas Linus and Vahini Shuri. Our executive producers at iHeart are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Itor. Special thanks to Carl Just, Jacqueline Charles, Edouard Duval-Carrier, Jacques-Michel F. Lemoyne, Michael Dybert, and Lena Richards. And at iHeart, thanks to Connell Byrne and Bob Pittman. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and subscribe to our channel. Thank you. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.